Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. <clears throat> but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of God. Thank you, Rich. Um, let me open us in prayer and then we'll take a look at this text. Um, Lord, we're grateful for the mercies that you extend to us daily, uh, for the, the grace that you give us on a moment-by-moment on a -moment basis. And uh, Father, we pray again for the end of this pandemic. Um, know that your people sorely wish to be together again. We, we very much want to start meeting um, physically, being together in worship. And so, Lord, we, we wait under your hand as you lead this pandemic through the different stages it will go. And uh, we, we await the deliverance on the other side when we can be together and, and jointly worship you uh, in the physical presence of each other. And Father, we pray to that end for our leaders, that you would grant them wisdom and understanding, uh, that you would give them the information they need to make wise decisions about how best to proceed through this pandemic. And uh, Lord, we, we count on your deliverance uh, through the grace that you extend to them. Father, we want to pray for Ron Davis's father, his family. Uh, Lord, his father recently passed away. Ron is in New Jersey with the family. And uh, Lord, I thank you that Ron got to share the gospel with his father and, um, and plead for his father to be reconciled with God and with his mom. And so, Lord, I pray that Ron would be a, a help and a comfort to the family even now as they go through the grieving of um, missing their father. So have mercy on them and, and use Ron, your servant, to uh, your purposes in that family. 
And uh, Lord, we pray for uh, Troy and Heather Farrell. Thank you for uh, them beginning to emerge from the illness. Uh, Father, for uh, the ability for them to, uh, to make it through. And, and Lord, I pray that they would have stories to tell uh, those around them about how you provided and cared for them in the midst of, uh, of the illness that they had. Lord, that they would show um, hope and calmness in the face of uh, the, the spreading disease to those around you who don't know you, who don't have that hope. And so thank you for hearing our prayers as we ask for their recovery. And we pray that you would be with them as they continue to be uh, strengthened and, and delivered from the illness. And uh, Father, we want to pray for our brother, Philip uh, Perry, who, uh, whose car recently broke down. Uh, Lord, would you provide for that? Help us to, uh, to help him with that. But also, Lord, for the, uh, the stroke that he recently had, we pray that, um, that the damage will not be too bad. Um, He's complaining of numbness and tingling. And so, Lord, I pray that you would um, be with him in his doctor's appointment this coming week, uh, that uh, they might have some, uh, some thoughts and some uh, ways for him to help uh, and to heal from that. And so, Lord, we just pray that you be watching over him. And, Lord, we turn now to um, some really difficult text. And so, Father, I need you. I, I can't do this on my own. I'm, I'm not capable of... of understanding and explaining this well. So, Father, would you, through the power of your Spirit, for the glory of Christ, be with us now as we turn to this text and help us to see it, to, uh, to understand it, to grasp it for what it is. And Lord, would you show us how it applies in our lives and, and uh, use it to conform us to the image of Jesus, your Son. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. So um, just a reminder of where we're at again. Um, what Paul has been doing so far is uh, what I said originally is he, he's writing to the church at Rome uh, because he needs, he's planning to go to Spain. So he needs a new home base to work, operate out of uh, Tar, uh, Tarsus or uh, Antioch would be too far away. Rome is a nice uh, uh, choice for a place to be based out of because everything goes to and from Rome. So he's writing to them to try to recruit them to be his home base is, is my take on this. Um, so to do that, what he does is he's presenting to them his gospel. And um, in chapter 1, verse 16, he explained his gospel, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that is really his theme throughout the book, is salvation, everyone, and belief. And what we saw then from chapters 1 through 3 is, is his presentation that everybody needs to be saved. Um, the Gentiles who uh, practice these horrible things, they need to be saved. The moralist who, who looks down on those practices, they need to be saved. And the religious Jew, they need to be saved. So everyone needs to be saved, one through three. Uh, then from three through five, Paul explains to us how we get saved. And he explained to us justification. He spent a lot of time working on the doctrine of justification. And so where we're at now at the end of five and really going through chapter seven uh, what Paul is going to introduce, what he's going to spend some time talking about is that person who's now justified by faith and their relationship to sin. How does that work now? What, what does that look like? Because remember, justification isn't we're good enough and therefore God accepts us. It is we are sinners in need of God and he pronounces us just. He, he assigns a just uh, uh, righteousness to us. So then do we just continue sinning or whatever? That's what Paul's going to deal with next. So the end of chapter five then is kind of a bridge between those two ideas a little bit. Um, 
at uh, the end of last week, uh, the end of chapter or uh, verse 11, um, Paul told us that it was through Jesus we now have received reconciliation. He ends on that word reconciliation. And what reconciliation is, is when there are two parties who have differences and then something comes in and, and uh, reconciles their relationship, makes their relationship right again. So that's what Jesus Christ has done for us, is he's reconciled us. Um, so what Paul is going to explain now is he's going to show us the need for reconciliation and the means of reconciliation. And when you take those two together, he sees parallels between these two. And he's going to show us how these two fit together. Um, that's what we're going to see today is, is the, the transgression and the free gift are the two things that, that come up quite a bit. Um, before we get there, though, we have to go through verses 12 through 14. And as I was preparing for this, um, many of the commentaries say this is some of the most difficult things that Paul has written in all of his writings. Uh, so um, what I'm going to do is we'll, we'll go through 12 through 14. Um, instead of presenting you all the confusing options and everything, what I'll do is do my best to explain it and, um, and hopefully get somewhere close. And if it's not really fine details, I'm sorry, but it, it's a confusing section. Um, we'll try to make it as clear as possible. And if you have a different take on it, know that you're in good company because there's a lot of different takes on it. But this is, this is what we're going to try to do today um, is try to, to iron this out. The second part, which was B15 through 21, is... Um, a little bit clearer and a little bit more straightforward. But unfortunately, we have to get this first part, this introduction, nailed down pretty well to begin with. So let's, let's take a look. Uh, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. So Paul makes this kind of blanket statement. And what he's doing in saying this is he's trying to show us why are we in this situation? So you remember um, in chapter one, he was talking about the Gentiles do all of these things. Well, how did they get to the point where they were doing that? And, and how is it that um, at the, end of, uh, at the uh, middle of chapter three, with those quotes from different Psalms, uh, how is it that we got to the place where none are righteous? No, not one, that all have turned aside. Well, this is where he introduces it. And he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's our problem. Sin came into the world through one man. Um, that little phrase has got a lot of theology packed into it. So let's stop for just a moment and kind of pull this apart. Um, he says sin came into the world, uh, first of all. Well, was sin in the, in the world? Well, not when it was originally created. Um, but does that mean that sin was, was nowhere present? Well, before Adam fell, before Adam sinned, there was sin in the world because Satan was standing in the tree talking to uh, Eve in the form of the serpent. Uh, so he's not talking about sin entering this globe or the creation as it was. What he's talking about is something different. And the key is that word world. Uh, the Greek word behind that is cosmos. Um, and we usually think of cosmos as like the stars and everything. But the way it's used in Greek, it can mean um, the earth. It could mean the created order, the whole universe, or actually it can mean humanity. Uh, so, for example, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, um, it, Paul says, In Christ, God was reconciling the word, the world, rather, the, the cosmos, to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So suddenly he goes from cosmos to there. 
so that's just an example to show that what he could be talking about in sin came into the world is not sin punctured this reality and, and then came in, but sin entered mankind. And I think that's a better reading because that's what he's talking about. That's where he goes with it. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, through sin so death spread to all uh, because all have sinned. So he's, he's talking first and foremost, not about the corruption of the created world, but the corruption of mankind. That, that's his, his point. And I think it's really important to get that nailed down and straight because if we misread it, we're going to misunderstand or we're in danger of misunderstanding some of the important things he says in the next part. So a couple of observations on this. Um, I've heard this verse 12, I've heard verse 12 used to defend the idea that before Adam sinned, there was no death in the world, that death did not exist in the world. Um, because it says sin uh, came into the world and death through sin. Um, so, for example, uh, could animals have died before Adam fell? Um, one of the important things that we say in the free church is the significance of silence. And so what we want to do is we want to say what the Bible says and not say what the Bible doesn't say. And so what we're seeing here in, in verse 12 is not how death entered all of the created order. Uh, what we're seeing is how death came to humanity. So in reality, the Bible doesn't say anything about animal death before Adam's fall. It just is, it doesn't say it. It's, it's not there. This verse 12 is not addressing that issue. Um, so you could understand that from different perspectives, but understand that the scripture isn't really clear on that. And so you have to kind of figure it out. Now, one of the arguments I've heard was, well, I can't imagine a perfect world where animals are dying. Um, well, first of all, the world wasn't perfect before the fall. When God created it, um, he said it was good, it was good, it was good. Then when he created mankind, when he created Adam and Eve, then he said it was very good, but he never said this is perfect. Uh, so you don't have to imagine a perfect world with animal death in it. That's really not what was going on. So again, it's, what I'm trying to say here is, is the Bible doesn't address that issue Chapter Romans 5, uh, verse 12 doesn't address that issue. So let's not push that in there because it might shift us a little bit wrong, uh, in a wrong direction. Let's keep really clear that what Paul is talking about here is how death came to humanity. That's the issue. How did death come to humanity? How did sin come to humanity? And that leads me to the second point that I want to make from this is it says that sin came into the world through one man. And so what this really requires, uh, because of the way Paul is going to talk about this, is what's called the historicity of Adam. And, and what we mean by that is Adam was an actual real person. He existed in history. He did something, and that thing has had cosmic consequences ever since. So within Orthodox Christianity, there, there are kind of three different approaches to the issue of creation. Uh, the first one is young earth creationism. And what you do is you look at Romans, or I mean, uh, Genesis chapter one, and it says uh, six days, therefore it's six 24 hour periods. Uh, the genealogies in uh, Genesis five don't give us millions and millions of years. The, the earth must be no more than 10 to 14,000 years old, something like that. Um, that position is probably the easiest way to read the text. 
And really, I don't think anybody in that position would argue with the historicity of Adam. They would just say, yeah, that's exactly right. The, uh, the next position is something called old earth creationism. And that is the idea that, well, the Bible doesn't really give us the age of the universe or the age of the earth. It's not talking about those things. It's focusing on humanity. And so as humanity, as we study that, yeah, the timeline kind of works out. So the rest is left open. And when we look at the world, it looks old. When we look at the stars and in, in, uh, the cosmos or the, the, I see I got that word stuck in my head, in uh, outer space, it looks old. Um, therefore, the universe is probably old. We, we don't know, but whatever it is, we know that, um, that uh, humanity is as described in the Bible. Um, now, in that position, sometimes people can get a little quirky about, well, was Adam and Eve real? And um, I, what I want to say is we have to accept the historicity of Adam and Eve because of the way Paul is going to talk, not only here, but in the rest of the chapter. He speaks of Adam as a real person. Jesus speaks of Adam as a real person. So Adam has to be a real person. The third position that some Christians hold, it's a very much a minor position, is something called theistic evolution. And what theistic evolution is, is it says, yeah, the universe is very old, and the mechanics of the way that God created humanity were the mechanics of evolution. Uh, so when you read in Genesis, for example, it says that God um, caused the animals to rise up out of the dust of the earth. Well, he used pre-existing material to create the animals. Um, when it came to time to create Adam, he, he molded the dust into the form of a man, breathed life into him. So there were pre-existing materials that God used to create man. And so the theistic evolutionists would say, well, if you look at genetic records and, and that kind of stuff, evolution is pretty solidly demonstrated there. Therefore, God must have used evolution to create humanity. Um, and in that position, sometimes because they're relying a lot on science, in that position, sometimes they can begin to deny or question the historicity of, of Adam. Um, uh, the genetic record, if we follow it back, seems to indicate there was a group of people, not one single one. And so that can be a problem. And so what I want to say is, no matter which position you take, we have to land firm on the historicity of Adam because of this and some other scriptures that affirm that. Adam is a, was a real person and, and we had a real problem uh, because of him. And to deny him is to deny some really key issues. So, um, so two things out of this. First of all, um, we're talking about how death came to humanity, not death in the world before the fall of Adam on animals or any of that other stuff. And second of all, Adam was a real person. Um, I think those are demanded by that first sentence. Uh, so again, sin came into the world through one man, Adam. Death through sin. Death comes through sin because that's what God had told Adam. In the day you eat of that tree you will surely die. So disobedience, sin breeds death. That's, that's how we wind up with death. Um, what Paul will tell us in chapter 6 is that the wages of sin is death. This is what sin does to us. It ultimately kills us. Um, so uh, sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, because death is a consequence of sin, and therefore death spread to all men. Why? Because all men sinned. Um, so that's the situation that Paul puts us in. We are in trouble because Adam did something, and now we all agree with Adam. Uh, we all continue to do what Adam did. Um, 
then if you're looking at the ESV, there's a, a hyphen, there's a dash there uh, at the end of chapter or verse 12. What happens is Paul starts with that state, statement and then interrupts his thought in verses 13 and 14. And in verses 13 and 14, he says some things that are very confusing. Um, this is where when you're looking through the, the uh, commentaries, they kind of go, well, here are the eight different options for interpreting this. And I'm thinking, well, thank you, but none of that's helpful. <laughs> How do I make sense out of this? So Paul has inter interrupted himself. He said that statement, and then he interrupts himself. And what's not clear is why did he interrupt that thought? Um, because what comes next doesn't seem to really help a whole bunch. Um, so let's take a look. What, what does he say? Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Um, that's the one that just froze me this whole week, looking at that going, what, what do you mean, Paul? Um, so what I'm going to offer you is, is kind of my rough idea of what he's meaning there. Um, and please understand that, that other people have other opinions, and I could be wrong. And my answer is not really as fleshed out as I would like it to be but I'm gonna to try to help us to see what, what's going on here. So here's what he says. Sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. Um, so what does he mean before the law was given? Well, probably speaking, remember we, we talked earlier, I said law was a confusing subject with, with um, Paul. He uses it in a number of different ways. So here when he says before law was given, um, it's probably that he's speaking about the law of Moses. Um, so, uh, that's probably what he's talking about is, is he's looking from Moses backward and saying, well, sin was in the world. There was sin there, even though there wasn't a set of codified rules. This, this law hadn't been given to Moses from Mount Sinai yet. Um, so there was this problem because we see death just rolling forward from Adam all the way to Moses. So uh, how do we understand that sin then? And that's where it gets confusing because the second part of that sentence is, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Um, what does he mean by sin is not counted? Uh, the New International Version translates it as sin is not charged against anyone's account. Uh, the King James just says not imputed. Uh, so he's admitted that there was sin in the world. Now, is he saying that that sin didn't count? It didn't matter? Um, God wasn't paying attention to it? Well, it can't be because there's a number of things that happened before, even just in the book of Genesis. Uh, Cain is told sin is crouching at your door. Uh, so God warns him about sin, even though there is no law at this point. Um, sin is crouching at, at Cain's door and will have him. It, it's, it's a threatening thing. Uh, if we jump forward to Genesis uh, 13, uh, that's when God is is talking with uh, Adam or with uh, Abraham, and He says that the the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against God. So again, no law had been given, and yet God pronounced the men of Sodom as great sinners. Um, when uh, Abraham in in uh, Genesis twenty uh, goes and, and is spending time with King Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech takes Sarah, he's, he's going to marry her or bring her, bring her into his harem, and what God tells him is he prevented him from sinning. So here's another case where sin is mentioned, God is preventing this man from sinning, even though the law wasn't given. And we could keep going. Joseph's story, there's plenty of opportunities for sin there. 
So Paul can't mean that sin didn't count, as in God just blew off sin before he gave us the law. So what does he mean? Well, I think to get at what he means is we've got to kind of pick through some more of this. And I think the answer to this might lie with uh, verse 20, which we'll get to in a little bit. Because in verse 20, he says, now the law came in to increase trespass. So perhaps that's what Paul is talking about is there was right and wrong from the fall of Adam to the time of Moses, even though God hadn't given them a a written law. It it was available because you remember what Paul said in, in chapter one is when a Gentile does or doesn't do what the law commands, he shows that the work of the law is written on his heart, that it's, it's there. So um, that law didn't get written on Gentiles' hearts magically when uh, God spoke from Mount Sinai. It was something that was always there. So when he talks about the law coming and sin not being counted or imputed, um, what I think he's saying is there was sin. There was the principle of sin. There was sin in people's lives, and God was judging that sin, but it wasn't set down in code so that you could look at it and say, here are all those things. So God didn't list all of those things to judge people. Um, it would come through other means. Um, so um, that's uh, kind of sketchy. It's not really full, but it's the best I've got. <laughs> so what happens is in verse 14, then, he, he continues that thought about sin and, and law, and he, he admits, he says, yet sin, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So Adam to Moses, death was, was raging through the world. Um, Noah, right? Um, in, in, uh, in Genesis 6, the world is so corrupt that God says, I'm going to wipe them out. That's how corrupt they had been. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. But then Paul says something really interesting. He says, even over those who sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam. So how was, what was their sinning like? Um, And how was it unlike Adam's? Well, Adam, you remember, was given a law, right? So Genesis chapter two, God creates Adam and he creates a garden and he said, he puts Adam in the garden. He says, you can eat from anything in this garden except for that tree. That's the only tree you can't eat from. Everything else is fair game, have a blast. Um, Eve wasn't created yet. Adam then is, is, God says it's not good for Adam to be alone. And uh, so he shows him all the created animals and and Adam stands there and names them. And at the end of it, he goes, none of these are for me. Where's mine? There should be one for me. And so then God puts Adam in a deep sleep, takes out a rib and creates Eve. Now Eve, as far as we know, never got the rule of the garden. Adam never, or I mean, God never is shown in, in Genesis 1, 2, or 3 as speaking directly to Eve and saying, here's the rule. So um, Adam had one law directly communicated from God. So those who sinned uh, under Adam or after Adam didn't sin like him. Um, the tree wasn't available, right? The flood wiped out the Garden of Eden. Uh, the garden had a wall, and, and there was an angel with a, a sword guarding it. So nobody could go in and eat from that tree. Um, so they didn't sin like Adam, but they did sin like an Adam in that they did things that were contrary to what God had said, what God had told them. Uh, so this idea that they didn't sin according to the likeness of uh, the transgression of Adam 
Um, one of the commentators, John Murray, I think he had a really good take on this. And I would read it to you, but Murray wrote in very stilted language. So I think what he's doing here is Paul is actually in verse 14, setting us up for what comes up in 15 through 21. Um, he says that um, they didn't sin in the likeness of the transgression of Adam, and yet they died. And where he goes with that is he's looking forward to what he's going to tell us about Adam and Jesus in this next section. And what he says is, just like they died because of sin, even though they didn't sin like Adam, um, in the same way we are justified by Jesus Christ, even though we don't perform righteousness like Jesus Christ. So he's setting up that kind of contrast between the two. Um, so that's that's the, where he, he talks about Jesus. He said that um, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Um, that typology, that word type is really important because what he's going to do for us in this coming section is he's going to look at Adam and say, these are things that Adam did. These are kind of qualifications that Adam had and, and what came of that. And he was actually pointing to, uh, looking forward to Jesus who would come. And so Paul is going to pick up these two people and their two events and their two things that they did and hold them up and show us how they're similar, but also how they're very different. Uh, so this, this typology is going to show us the contrast between Adam and, um, and Jesus. And that really is the heart of this, uh, this message. That's the heart of this section is what we get either in Adam or in Jesus. So let's take a look at the next section, starting verse 15. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one who, uh, the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So there's a lot there too. Let's let's go back and look. The free gift is not like the trespass. And you remember Paul has used uh, in the the previous section. He's used that idea of uh, salvation as a gift. If Abraham had been righteous enough to be declared righteous, then it wasn't a gift. It was a wage. It was what he was owed. So this idea of the free gift is that idea of justification. The free gift is not like what got us to the point where we needed that free gift. For if many have died through one man's trespass, um, the word trespass and free gift are going to be repeated over and over again. For many died through one man's trespass. Uh, that's echoed in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die. And this is the doctrine, this is what we call in Christianity the doctrine of original sin. And, and what it's saying is we are all guilty because of Adam's sin, that, that we are all guilty of that. Um, the idea is something called federal headship. And um, where we see federal headship, for example, in, in um, our common experience is whether you like them or loathe them, Trump, Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, all of these men were our president. And, and you could love them, you could have voted for them, you could think they were wonderful, or you could hate their guts and think they're terrible. One thing you can't honestly say is that's not my president. Because whether you like it or not, that is your president. And when that president goes to another country and speaks, that president is representing you, whether you like it or not, whether you agree or not. That's what's called federal headship, where federation is a group of people and we have one head. So this one person is representing us. 
Um, that's what Paul is talking about here is we have a federal head and that federal head's name is Adam. And so what Adam did on our behalf was sin. And so since he has sinned, we wind up sinning with him. That is the idea of original sin. That, that's what comes to us. Um, now, some people don't like that, but I'll tell you what, the implication of, of original sin is that people are basically bad, that, that human beings are born basically bad. And I think when you look at the world, that doctrine makes much more sense of the world than saying people are basically good. Um, there was an article, a news story, uh, I think it was from the beginning of the protest, uh, Tucker Carlson, a commentator on Fox News, uh, back in June was commenting on the, the, uh, the protests. And one of the unfortunate things was the Chiron, you know, that's that thing across the bottom of the screen, the words that go down there. Uh, the Chiron, underneath born evil and sin cannot be inherited. And um, I didn't listen to all of what he had to say, but that Chiron caught my attention and I thought he could not be more theologically incorrect there. Um, children can be born bad and sin can be inherited. That's what the Christian doctrine of original sin is all about. Uh, so this is important because it helps us to understand the world. Why, why do bad people do things? Or why do people do bad things? Or why do good people do bad things? Well, because we're all basically bad. We've all been born with Adam's sin. We're all bent away from obeying God. And so that helps us to understand why things happen this way, to not be too terribly surprised when, when people sin, when people do bad things. Um, that's the situation that we're in. Many died through one man's trespass, but, and this is what's gonna be happening through the rest of this section is the contrast. Um, we, we've died through Adam's contrast or through Adam's trespass. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, by the grace of the one man abounded to many. So Adam did this and it put us in a bad place. Jesus did this and it brought us grace and the free gift of justification and abounded to many people. And, and that's how you see the parallel is it's one man, Adam, one man, Jesus. But you also see the contrast is one brought ruin and one brings justification and help. Um, he, he says there also that it is um, through the free, uh, through the, uh, I'm sorry, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace uh, come to us. It's important to remember that God's grace is not the gift. God's grace is how the gift is given to us, is because God has affixed his love on us so that he can then extend to us the gift, which is justification by faith in Christ. So grace brings us that gift. It's, it's not the gift itself. Um, and so that, that's important to keep that straight as well. So verse 16, um, he goes on and unpacks a little bit more. The free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So imagine that. Go back and, and think about Adam. What did Adam do? Adam ate from a tree. And that one act, that one thing brought condemnation. It brought judgment. It brought down God's wrath. Uh, just by eating from one, one fruit from the tree, and that was enough. But the free gift 
fo um, following many trespasses brought justification. So one trespass brings judgment and condemnation, one free gift after many of those trespasses, right? So it's not just Adam's sin, it's all of us sinning and adding to that. The free gift comes and brings justification to us. Um, that, that's the, the, the idea of headship again. And um, again, it happens, it didn't want to crowd too much of this at the beginning, so it's kind of spreading this out. Uh, this is headship again, that, that one sin brought condemnation to all men. Did you notice that it wasn't Eve's disobedience? Um, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, or Genesis chapter 3, um, Eve is the one who is speaking with the serpent. And, and after the serpent has lied to her and got her really confused, she looks at the fruit and goes, hey, there's benefit to be had here. She takes it and she eats it. She ate first. But we haven't fallen in Eve. There's nowhere in the Bible that says we fell in Eve. What happened next was she took the fruit and gave it to her husband who was with her there. So Adam is standing there watching this. And what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2 is Adam was not confused. Eve was very confused. Adam was not. So Eve eats out of this confused state, hands it to her husband, and, and Adam must have been looking at her going, well, he, Satan lied. He, the, the, the law wasn't you can't touch the tree. The, this, the law was you can't eat from the fruit. But the other part of the law was the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, and Eve is still standing here. So he used his wife as a guinea pig and then said, okay, well, I'll take it and eat because there's benefit to be had here. He did it with a clear mind, with a clear understanding of exactly what's going on. So what happened was Adam at that point is representing Eve as well, even though she sinned first. So Adam is our representation. He is our representative. He is our federal head. And that one trespass, that one act brought condemnation on all of us. That is the danger of our headship. So here's where we're at. We can be aligned with Adam. We can have him as our federal head, or we can be aligned with Jesus. And with Jesus standing as our representative, now we get justification. And that's the distinction. That's the difference between the two of them. So verses 17 and 18 now. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Uh, verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. Um, we're, we're, I mentioned earlier that we have a president, and you can't say that's not my president. You're kind of stuck. Um, the glorious thing is that what God has done in this situation with our federal head is he gives us the option to switch. He, he is making it possible to go from our default federal head of Adam, who brings condemnation and death, and he's making it available to us to switch to a new federal head, a better federal head, a, a representative who didn't fall. Jesus, who didn't bring condemnation, but brings righteousness. Um, he brings the free gift of righteousness to us. And so that's the, the blessing that we have. That's the place that we're standing now is Paul is, is saying, we have been justified. We have Adam as our, our forefather, 
and the sin and the corruption and the decay and the death that comes with him. But now we have switched alliances. We've switched over to Jesus Christ as, as our Savior. And so the end of this, verses 20 and 21, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the law came in to increase trespass. The law didn't come in to create sin. There's a distinction. When Paul uses that word trespass, he almost always, every single time, uses it to describe the violation of a commandment that God has given. Um, so law comes in to increase trespass. Sin was already there. Sin was already operating. God comes in with his law and says, here's how you should live. And what happens is now we have this list of things that we're violating. And it cre increases our trespass. But where sin increased... So now Paul is going to bring that up in chapter 7. Just because you get a list of, of here's the law, this is what you shouldn't do, um, doesn't mean you will comply with that. Um, because here's the list, here's the trespasses, and now, oh, oh, by the way, what that actually does is increase sin. Uh, Paul talks about that later. He says, I didn't think about coveting until I read the law that said don't covet. Now I can't stop coveting. So law will only increase sin. But when that happened, what also happened is grace abounded all the more. God continued to expand his grace to give it to people so that they could live in a righteous relationship with him, even under law before that, before Jesus came. And so he ends with, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we said, why did God choose to justify us by faith? And one of the reasons was, and that was so that God would be glorified. And I said that because it said that um, Abraham was justified by faith and brought God and, and glorified God in that. So God does this to show his glory. So why does God give law if law increases trespass? Why does he give law if sin abounds because of law? Because the other side of that is that also causes grace to shine even more to shine even more brightly. So I, there was a, um, a man in the 1970s, uh, Ted Bundy, and he was a serial killer. Um, he, uh, he killed m many women. It was, I don't want to go into the details. It was pretty gross, but he was caught and he was put in prison. And in prison, he came to Christ. Now, before he was arrested, he converted to Mormonism. He got baptized in the Mormon church, but never really had anything to do with them. In prison, though, he came to know who Jesus was, professed faith. And so um, the day before he was executed in 1989, uh, James Dobson, the president of Focus on the Family, went in to interview him. Now, Dobson's point was, at that point, Dobson was on a commission um, uh, to uh, reduce pornography or, or something to do with pornography. And that was what Ted Bundy said had really led him into this violent, vicious, ugly life was was. Um, he had stumbled into pornography. But what James Dobson also talked about was his faith. And, and so when he came out, he was talking about, you know, the issue of pornography, but also saying, you know, it, Ted Bundy has professed faith in Jesus Christ. When he's executed tomorrow, he might well be in heaven. If that faith is real, he will be there. And I can remember people being very upset about that. So you mean to tell me this guy goes and he does all these vile, horrible things, 
And then he comes at the last moment and says, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And he gets off the hook. Um, well, first of all, he doesn't get off the hook. He, he still got executed. He was electrocuted that very next day. So he didn't get off that hook. But some folks were upset that he didn't go to hell. Well, here's the thing is when there's that kind of evil and God's grace, you can either say it's unjust or it can make God's grace shine even brighter. So God extending his grace to somebody who, you know, stole money out of the uh, coffee bin or you know, the coffee can. Uh, well, that, you know, that's, that's something. For him to extend grace to Ted Bundy, a murderer, a rapist, um, who, who did it repeated times over and over again, how could God do that? Well, because that's the nature of his grace, is he's not waiting until we get cleaned up and nice and pretty. He extends his grace to us, and we're saved by that. And it makes his grace seem even bigger, which means his glory shines even brighter. And, and we may not like the fact that Ten Bunny got off, quote unquote, but God showed grace to him. Wouldn't, doesn't that give you comfort that he could show grace to you? If he could forgive somebody that bad, could he forgive you for for lying or bragging or being proud? Isn't that a possibility? So that's where Paul then is, is kind of reminding us here. Remember I said at the beginning, the end of last section, verse 11, he talked about this reconciliation that we have through Jesus. This is what that reconciliation looks like. God reconciled sinners to himself, not roughly good people, not really you know, religious and upright people. He reconciled sinners he, that's the reconciliation that he brought. That's the reconciliation that we need. And that's the reconciliation that is a free gift extended by grace through the work of Jesus Christ. We start in Adam, all of us, but we have been given this free gift, this, this, this wonderful thing to live by. Now, where Paul is going to go next week, uh, uh, chapter 6 and 7, is he's going to discuss the issue of that person who's been justified by grace, not by being a perfect person, but because God has extended to him his grace in justification through faith. It raises the question, then how do we live in relationship to sin now? If we're saved not by cleaning up our life, we're saved by faith, then how do we, what's our relationship to sin going forward after justification? And, and so that's where we're going to go next week is what does that look like what does it mean to be justified and to live according to that, that fact that you have been justified? Um, that's what uh, six and seven will really be addressing. And so that's where we'll go next week. Um, so with that, let me close us in a, in a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, thank you for the free gift. Lord, thank you for allowing us to shift tracks from Adam to Christ. Thank you for extending it by grace, simply because you decided that you would do it that you would love the people that you would love. And Lord, thank you that you have made it possible only through faith, not through cleaning our lives up or getting better or putting sin completely away so that we could be justified. But Lord, thank you for the mercy that you've given us. And so Lord, as we move into this next section where it gets really practical about how should we then live, uh, Lord, I pray that, that this picture we got about the, the transgression that was in Adam and the free gift that is in Christ. I, I pray that that would frame our thinking so that we remember who we are now and walk according to that. Uh, Lord, be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.